Chapter 3 of The Fairy Spinning Wheel and the Tales It Spun. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Derrida. The Fairy Spinning Wheel and the Tales It Spun by Catul Mendes. Translated by Thomas Jean Rie Vivian. From 1855-1925. Chapter 3. The Three Sowers Three young companions set out to see the world. As the season was winter, it rained and blew and snowed all over the surrounding country. But the road along which the three passed was golden with sunshine. While each time the hawthorn bloom swayed in a gentle breeze, a swarm of butterflies and bees rose from it into the air. This was because the three companions were youths of sixteen, and, it being springtime in their hearts, it was springtime all about them. In the same way, if an old man goes into a garden on a rosy morning of May, the daylight seems to fade out, the sky grows cloudy, and the white honeysuckles look like so many snowflakes. So these three walked along, just following the road, and that, after all, is the best way to walk. One of these youths was named Honrat. The other was called Chrysler while the third and youngest was called Alloys. They were all three handsome, with the freshness of health upon their cheeks, and with curly hair blown here and there by the wind. Seeing them thus walking along that sunny road, you would scarcely have noticed any difference between them, but a close examination would have shown that Honrad had the proudest air, that Chrysler was quiet and shrewd, and that Alloys was the most gentle and timid. What they seemed to be on the outside, they were within, for the body is but the casing of the soul. Only men have had the bad habit of wearing this envelope the wrong side out. Honorat, in his fancies, pictured himself as the son of some most powerful king. Poor, hungry child of fortune, eating the crusts thrown to him from the windows of the rich, drinking water from the springs of the hollow of his hand, and sleeping in the shelter of barns, he yet dreamed of being surrounded by power and glory. He dreamed, too, of courtiers, gorgeous with lace, kneeling before him in a throne room supported on pillars of jasper and marble, while through wild folding doors ambassadors entered, hastening from foreign lands, behind them coming African slaves, clanded red satin, and bearing chests in which were marvelous and charming jewels, fine pearls, silks, and brocade, the humble offerings of the Emperor Trebizonde and the King of Cyrenagon. Or else he imagined that he was leading an innumerable army to victory, putting the troops of the enemy to flight with his flashing sword, and then that his loving people bore him in triumph underneath arches decorated with flapping banners, over which glory spread her wings. Chrysler dreamed of things less heroic. His thoughts ran to money. Great sums of money. Always money. To gold and silver, especially to gold, to diamonds without count, any one of which would be worth all the treasures of the richest monarchs. The gold of his visions was forever sparkling before his eyes and flowing between his fingers, even when he held out his hands to passers-by, and was thankful for a copper cent. So great was his love for gold, indeed, that had he been placed between two doors, one leading to paradise and the other to a treasure chamber, 
I do not believe he would have opened that which led to paradise. As to little alloys, better looking and more delicate than his companions, he troubled himself nothing about palaces, courtiers, ambassadors, or armies. In place of a table laden with a service of gold, he would have preferred a corner in a flowery meadow. With his youthful appearance, an appearance, in fact, almost like that of a young girl than like that of a lad, he kept his eyes fixed on the ground, watching the lady-birds climbing up on the blades of grass, and raising them only to admire the rosy dawn on the crimson sunset. The only pleasure he desired, and he really enjoyed it, was to sing as he walked, to sing in the morning the song he had composed on the evening before, a song of pretty shyness, set to a pleasant tune, which the birds of the bushes took up and sang back as a chorus. So it happened that, if in the night-time, in the clear silence of the stars, they heard one of those strange noises which are but the sighs of nature in her sleep, if one of those noises were heard, Listen, Honorat would say, is that not the sound of a trumpet? Chrysler, on the other hand, would ask, is that not the distant sound of a piece of gold rolling into a drawer? While Alloys would murmur, I fancy it must be the chirping of some little birds in their nests chirping before they go to sleep again. One day an old woman, who was digging out a narrow furrow in a barren field, saw these three young youths coming along the road. She was so old and so ragged that you might have taken her for long ago in tatters, and she was as ugly as she was old. One yellow eye was gone, and the other half was covered with a film. Three tufts of gray hair stuck out from the folds of a dirty old cotton handkerchief wound around her head. Her skin was red and wrinkled, and her lips went flip-flap over her toothless gums every time she breathed. Anyone who met her would have hurried away, anxious to see a rose or a pretty child to make him forget her ugliness. She was, however, only a fairy in disguise, and no sooner did she see the three young companions, Honorat, Chrysler, and Alloys, than she transformed herself into a lovely sylph clad in gorgeous robes, the skirts of which were so embroidered in flowers and precious stones that butterflies came floating about her, thinking that the whole of April was stopping in this barren field. "'What ho, my pretty youths,' said the fairy. "'Stop, I pray you. I wish to do you a favor." First, because you are young, which is a charming thing in itself, and next, because I have noticed that you always take care when walking, not to crush the poor little insects as they cross the lane. Come here, and sow whatever seed you have in this furrow which I have just dug out. Do this, and, on my honor as a fairy, this field, barren though it seems to be, will give you back a hundredfold all of that you've put into it. I leave you to think how charmed the three travelers were to see so sweet a creature and to hear her speak such pleasant words. At the same time, they found themselves very much embarrassed, being so poor that they had not the faintest thing in the world to put into the fairy furrow. Alas, madame, said Honorat, after having talked a moment with Chrysler and Alloy, we have nothing which we would wish to see return a hundredfold, unless it be our dreams, and they will never bear fruit. "'How do you know that?' asked the fairy, shaking out her hair to drive away a butterfly, which was very naturally mistaking her for a bed of pinks. "'How do you know that?' she repeated. "'Sow your dreams into the open ground, and we will see what will come up.' Then Honorat knelt down, and putting his mouth to the furrow, 
began to whisper into it all of his ambitious fancies. He told the furrow about the place of jasper and marble, crowded with courtiers in fine laces, of ambassadors entering by the royal doors, of negroes borne down beneath the burden of tributes, and of armies in triumphs. He had not time to finish all of his story when troops of horsemen in golden breastplates and with eagles' wings for crests came galloping over the plain, proclaiming it aloud that they sought for the son of the dead monarch to conduct him into his kingdom. As soon as they saw Honorath, they cried, It is he! and carried him off as their master, with sounds of joy to his marble palaces, to his battles and his spoils. Having seen this, Chrysler did not long delay to kneel down and sow into the soil his dream wishes for riches, for money, for jewels. Scarcely had he spoken twenty words before the furrow was filled with gold and silver, with diamonds and pearls. Drunk with joy, he leaped upon these treasures, grasped in his hands, filled his pockets and even his mouth with them, and went off to the richest of the rich, seeking for some hiding place in which to conceal his treasures. "'Well, Alois,' said the fairy, "'what are you thinking about? "'Why do you not follow the example of your companions?' "'He did not reply at first, "'having scarcely taken any notice of what had passed, "'his attention having been given to a myrtle-bush "'round which a wild clematis was lovingly twining itself. "'Why should I?' he replied at length. There is nothing I wish for except to listen to the nightingale sing in the evening and to hear the crickets chirping in the hot noon day. All that I could do would be to sing a song into the furrow. Well, sing it, replied the fairy. Perhaps the seed of a song is worth more than anything else. So Alois sang his song into the furrow, and as he began his second verse, a beautiful maiden came out of the opening earth and, linking her arms in his, said, Ah, how sweetly you sing! Let me be your friend and new companion. Thus did the good fairy come to the aid of three wandering youths who had been walking along the sunlit road, heedless of where they went. But when a little time had passed, there came about such results to two of the youths as were sad indeed. Beaten by an obstinate enemy after doing wonders of courage, King Honorat was obliged to quit his capital and to take refuge in a monastery, where they cut off his hair after having first taken away his crown. A band of robbers discovered the hiding place where Chrysler the Rich had stowed away his treasures, stole it, and left him to beg for alms on the highways. Alois alone was happy, for the maiden who loved his songs soon loved him also and married him, so that she might be with him always. End of chapter 3 Recording by David Derrida.